One of my favorite, well, probably my favorite secular poem is a poem called The Road Less Traveled by a man named Robert Frost. Many of you are probably familiar with this poem. Let me read for you the first stanza and then the last. There are four stanzas, but we're only going to do the first two. Robert Frost writes in this poem, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. The last stanza of the poem reads, I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood and I. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now, the reason why I like this poem so much is that it reminds me of a point in my life where I stood at a fork in the road, and there were two paths diverging on the way forward. And at that moment, I was 19 years old, and I made the most important decision as a Christian that I've ever made. Now, the most important decision anyone makes is the decision to follow Christ, to give their life to Christ. That decision for me is at a younger age, and that's <clears throat> clouded in a bit of murkiness. <clears throat> but this decision that I'm thinking of, I remember very specifically where I was, and I remember the circumstances, and I remember feeling, here are these two paths that are in front of me, and for a long time I stood looking down these two roads. And here I am this morning, ages and ages since, looking back on that one decision, realizing that was the decision that made all the difference. All the difference. The single most important decision that I ever made as a Christian. It was not to become a pastor. That's important. It was not even to marry my beautiful wife, Lisa. That's also an extremely important decision. But those two decisions pale in comparison to the one that I'm thinking about. That if I look back and if I'm honest, I can say that everything good in my life, everything, everything, have I been clear? Everything good in my life, spouse, children, health, ministry, opportunities, finances, experience, whatever good that I can think of in my life that has either happened to me or that I have somehow been a part of, I can trace back to this one decision. Everything in life, the most important decision I ever made as a Christian. And this is the decision. It was to become serious about prayer. That in the Christian life, there really are two paths when it comes to the idea of prayer. One is a path that many Christians were on. I was on it. It's the path of playing around with prayer. That was me. I prayed before meals. I prayed sometimes before I went to bed, if I could remember. 
I prayed sometimes before a big test or when something came up. But prayer was a ritual for me. It was something that you sort of did. It was guilt-based that you needed to do it. You kind of checked it off your list and you got done and get on with the rest of your life. That was me playing around with prayer. Now, at that moment in my life, I had a good answer when people asked me, how's your prayer life? Here was my answer. You'll like this. I live in an attitude of prayer. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds good. But that was me. That was just playing around with prayer. That was a rationalization or justification for the fact that I knew I wasn't really serious about prayer. I was on the path of people who played at prayer. But there is another path. And it is the one less well-traveled. I knew people on that path. I had heard stories about them. Stories about people like Charles Spurgeon or Hudson Taylor or Susanna Wesley, moms who prayed for their sons or daughters to come to faith and do mighty things, some of the older men or women in the church who were really serious about prayer. I knew people who were on that path. I just wasn't. I was playing around with prayer. And then when I was 19 years old, I faced a crisis and I would really probably say it was the first real, real crisis that I remember. One in which I was on my own. And as this crisis came bearing down on me, it scared the life out of me. Because it brought with it my greatest fear, the fear of failure. And there I was, 19 years old, facing down this crisis in which I had no hope. There was no one who could help me, no one who was going to rescue me from this. And I was staring very real failure in life, and I was petrified. And in the middle of a college dorm room, in the middle of that crisis, all those sermons I had ever heard about prayer all the things I had ever heard, prayer changes things, prayer makes a difference, prayer can do the impossible, all of that stuff. In that moment, all that stuff came flooding back to me and there I stood at this fork in the road. I could continue down the path of playing around with prayer and see where that got me with this crisis or I could take the road less traveled. And at that moment, by God's grace, I switched paths. And I'm looking back ages and ages since saying, that is the single most important decision. And it made all the difference. Anything good in my life that I can point to from that point on is a result of the decision to be serious about prayer. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to be serious about prayer, to not play at prayer? Well, this morning, I'd like you to take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. As Tom said, this morning we begin a new sermon series in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And Tom has laid out for us what it is that's really the theme of what's going on in these books. That there are lots and lots of characters who are going through the motions, especially when it comes to prayer. They're playing at prayer. Prayer is a ritual. But for some of the characters in First and Second Samuel, their hearts are fully devoted to God. They have undivided hearts for God. And here at the beginning of these two books, in the opening passage, 
we see a woman whose name is Hannah, who at this very moment stands at that fork in the road. She too will make this life-changing decision and will switch paths from being a person who plays around at prayer, for whom prayer is simply a ritual, to becoming a person for whom prayer is the reality. And as we see her story narrated, we come to understand what it means to be serious about prayer, what it means to walk that road less traveled. So let's look together at her story. Begin in verse one with lots of words that are gonna be hard for me to pronounce. <laughs> there was a certain man from Ramathan, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Only one more service to get through that verse. <laughs> he had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. <clears throat> this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Now, just like in my life, it was a crisis, a crisis in which there was no hope or help that caused me to switch paths, to become serious about prayer. So too in Hannah's life, she's in the middle of a crisis. Now, if you didn't catch from the text, here's the crisis. There's a guy and he's got two wives. Now, in that culture, one of the most important things that women did was bear children, and one of the wives, Peninnah, she had lots and lots of kids. The other wife, Hannah, who we're interested in, she has no children. To make matters worse for poor Hannah, the other wife, what do you call the other woman in a, when a husband has two wives? Your wife-in-law? <laughs> Hannah's wife-in-law keeps provoking her. She keeps rubbing it in. She's rubbing salt in this wound and she's constantly poking at her. You don't have any kids. What's the matter with you? You don't have any kids. What's wrong? And Hannah feels this grief in a terrible way. But not only does her wife-in-law provoke her, her husband, who is a good guy and means well, says to her in the midst of her crying, isn't my love better than the love, than having 10 sons? The answer is, no, these are apples and oranges, like it's great. <laughs> I mean, we're very glad that Elkanah loves Hannah, but in Hannah's case, that's a different issue. That's not a substitute for what she desperately, desperately wants with his children. So in the middle of this situation where neither foe 
the wife-in-law, nor friend, her husband, can be of any help. Hannah finds herself in this situation where she is desperate for somebody to help her. And the person she decides to turn to is God. And at this very moment, we're going to read the passage in just a second. We see Hannah switch paths. So significant is this switch that Hannah becomes the only woman in the whole Old Testament about which it is said explicitly that she prayed. So powerful is this switch. At this moment, she is going to get off the road of playing at prayer and become serious about prayer. Now the question is, why didn't she do this earlier? I can't imagine this is the first time she asked God for a child. I can't imagine that this is the first time it dawns on her to pray. But there's something about this year. There's something about what her wife-in-law is doing to her this year. There's something about the statement that her husband makes this year. There's something about the festival that she's at this year. Maybe it's something about her own advancing age. Whatever it is, at this moment, this crisis hits her in a new and powerful way, and she is facing her real fear. And at that moment, like Robert Frost Traveler, she makes this fateful decision that she is going to pray like she's never prayed before. Let's look at her prayer or her praying. Verses 9 through 17. Once more they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Hannah, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and he said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Here we see Hannah pray as if for the first time. At this moment, she is switching paths from being a person who plays at prayer to being serious about prayer. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you five characteristics of what it looks like to be serious about prayer. The first is, is that real prayer, prayer that's not just a ritual, Prayer that is truly prayer is emotionally engaged. It's emotionally engaged. Look at verse 10. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much. In bitterness of soul, she is emotionally all in right here. This is at the deepest heart of what she is feeling and she pours out her emotions to the Lord. Now, many of you here are parents. 
Can you resist when your child begins to sob or to cry? Now look, we all know what tears of manipulation look like. (laughs) I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about genuine, heartfelt tears. As a parent, can you just turn a deaf ear to that? Does it not move you in your soul? Don't underestimate the power of tears, whether it's a spouse or a child or a parent or whoever or a friend. When there is genuine sorrow and emotion, it will move you. It will stop an elephant in his tracks. When someone begins to cry from their heart, it moves us. But if it moves us, what do you think it does to God? Do you think he can resist the tears of his children? If we're moved, is he not more moved? Are we more merciful than he is? Now don't think that this is just a female approach to prayer. We are told of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with what? Loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus was characterized as a crier when it came to prayer. Now, this is specifically thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane and the prayer that Jesus offers there. But can you imagine that scene? If you're one of those disciples in that garden, Jesus is over a little way. He's not praying quietly. He is crying out loudly, and he's weeping. Do we not think that our Father in heaven is moved by those tears? That real, serious prayer is fully, emotionally engaged in what's going on. Second characteristic, not only is it emotionally engaged, to be serious about prayer, that kind of prayer is time-consuming. It's time-consuming. Look at verse number 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, literally in Hebrew it is, she was long in prayer to God. See, it's not like Hannah says, "Uh, dear Lord, I'd like a baby, please, thank you, amen. She's praying for hours and hours and hours about this one thing. This is not a five-minute prayer. This is not a 10-minute prayer. This is a prayer that lasts for hours and hours. She is long at prayer. Before I had children, I was given a piece of advice about parenting that turned out to be absolutely and completely false. (laughs) I was told... What matters is not the quantity of time, but the quality of time. That's a lie. You can't have quality time without quantity of time. That 10 minutes of devoted, intense time with a child cannot compare to three hours hanging out with them. It's just not right. So it is with God. There is no such thing as 10 minutes of concerted quality time with God that somehow is better than 
hours and hours spent with him. When I worked at Calvary as a pastoral intern, I was getting ready to leave to go overseas to do some further studying. And probably a month before I left, Ed Dobson, who was the senior pastor of the church at that time, was preaching out of Luke's gospel, and he preached a sermon about Jesus praying all night before he chose his disciples. Well, I was getting ready to go off and do a PhD, and one of the things in a PhD, you have to have a research topic, and that's what you're going to spend most of your life for the next three or four years doing. So as I'm getting ready to move overseas, I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a second, that sermon just kept rattling around in the back of my mind. If Jesus, the Son of God, has to pray all night to make sure he makes a good choice, well, maybe I need to pray all night so that God will choose for me a research project. So I get, we get to England. Two or three days after we've moved there, I set aside a night. I'm going to try praying all night. Now, I've never tried this before in my life. I set aside time and I say, okay, I'm going to pray all night. Start at 10 p.m. By about 10.37, I was done. <laughs> I mean, I had prayed everything I thought to pray about. I didn't have a whole lot of things. I needed one answer to one question. Lord, what do you want me to study? What do you want me to research? I need a topic. But I've already committed to pray all night long, and so I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? So I start over again, and I keep trying to pray, and I start typing my prayers, and I start reading through the New Testament, trying to pray through anything that I find there. I start singing. It was a good thing no one else was around. I'm trying to sing praise songs, and I'm trying to stay awake, and I'm, and I'm praying, and it's brutally difficult. It was one of the hardest things that I've done. And I'm praying, and it's 2 o'clock, and it's 3 o'clock, and it's 4 o'clock, and I'm paying attention because I'm like, when are we going to be done? This is hard. <laughs> and somewhere around 5.30 in the morning, I realized nothing's happened. Like, I thought, well, the heavens are going to open up. There's going to be writing on the wall. It's going to be absolutely crystal clear. And at 5.30 in the morning, I thought, this has been a bust. Now, intellectually, of course it couldn't be. Yes, it's going to be good. But I'm telling you, 5.30 in the morning with no sleep, you're not thinking straight. <laughs> I was horribly discouraged and disappointed, and I thought, what a waste of time. Well, I had said I was going to pray all night, so I got to pick a time. When is night over? <laughs> well, at 5.30, 6 a.m. seems like a good time that night is over. So I said, 6 a.m., I quit. 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., that, that, that felt like it counted to me. And I kid you not, at 5.55 in the morning, on my last prayer, suddenly a question popped in my mind that I had never thought of before. It was a question about an academic subject. And when it popped in my mind, it was like I was fully awake. And it was like the light had come on and that was my topic. And I spent the next three years researching that one question. God had answered my prayer. Now the question is, God, why didn't you tell me that at 10, 10 p.m.? <laughs> Think of all that time we could have saved. Why didn't he tell it to me at that point? I don't know, why did Jesus have to pray all night long before he chose his 12 disciples? Looking back, I think the answer is, is because being serious about prayer means that prayer is measured in hours, not in minutes and seconds. 
That's the way God set this thing up. That Hannah is praying for hours and hours. Jesus prays all night long that somehow, yes, there is a path where we sort of play around at prayer and there are 30-second prayers here and there, but this kind of prayer, this kind of prayer is measured in hours, not in minutes or seconds. Third characteristic, not only is it emotionally engaging, time-consuming, it's also completely absorbing completely absorbing. When Hannah is here praying, she doesn't notice that there's a priest who's watching her, that Eli occasionally sticks his head in to see what's going on. She has no sense that he's there because she's so absorbed in her prayer. Her prayer is so absorbing that her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out. She's rocking back and forth. She's so completely absorbed in this prayer, she doesn't notice that the priest is looking at her like she's drunk. That she's so absorbed in what's going on that it actually says in verse number 12, as she kept on praying, we've translated it to the Lord. In Hebrew it says, before the Lord. That what really has happened is that Hannah has left this temple in Shiloh and she has moved into the throne room of heaven that everything else has faded from view. She doesn't know that there's anything else going on in life. It's just her and God. She's absolutely absorbed in this prayer. You know, this is the kind of prayer that you don't pray while you're running on a treadmill or while you're driving a car or while you're cooking dinner or while you're waiting for a video game to load. Now, it's good to pray at those times. Don't hear me wrong. But this kind of prayer, this is too absorbing to do anything else. If I'm driving a car, I don't want Hannah driving towards me praying like this. She has given God 100% of her undivided attention. She's left this world and gone into his presence. And everybody else has faded from view. This kind of prayer is totally and completely absorbing. Okay, fourth characteristic, and here's where we're gonna call a little bit of an audible. <clears throat> you have five on your sheet. There were five, until last night as I began to pray through and look back through this passage, a sixth one came to mind. So I'm gonna insert it here, just move the rest of them down. I wish I had seen this before we made those notes, <laughs> but it came last night, and here's the fourth one. Hannah is bold in her prayer. Look what she says. She made a vow. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord. She's making a bargain with God. She's making a deal with God. Look, God, you do this, I'll do that. That is bold. There is a boldness associated with going to the Lord of the universe and telling him, hey, look, here's what I think we ought to do. You need to do that part. I'll do this part. Let's go. Does that not seem bold? But this kind of prayer, I mean, look, she has no other hope. Who's going to help her? Not her friend, not her rival, not anybody. God's the only one that can help her. And when she comes into his presence, she is bold. Just like it says in Hebrews, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. 
The ultimate example of this as I thought about it when I was going through this last night is the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 15. Here's a woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon. Nobody can help her. She hears there is a man who's come from God who can cast out demons. His name is Jesus. So she finds where he's at and she begins to follow him around. Now, she's not Jewish. Syrophoenician means she's not Israeli. She's following Jesus around, crying out to him, son of David, have mercy, help my daughter. What does Jesus do? He ignores her. Now, look, I'm not the sharpest knife in the block, but that seems like a no to me. Like if you're following after a man crying out for help and he ignores you, it probably means he's not interested in helping you. But this lady is bold and she's desperate. So she keeps crying out until finally the disciples are like, "Uh, Jesus, can we do something about the crazy lady who keeps crying out after us? So here's what Jesus does. He turns to her and says, I'm not here to help you. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're not Jewish. I'm not helping you. Now again, if you didn't think the ignoring was a no, that's a no. But this lady won't take no for an answer. She's absolutely brashly bold, so she falls down on her knees, completely ignoring what Jesus just said to her. She just completely dismisses it and says, Lord, please help me. And then what does Jesus say? It's not right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Now look, if you don't know what that means, that's a no. That is the strongest possible no that you can get. In fact, if it wasn't Jesus, we would say it was rude. It seems to be an absolute slamming the door no. But this lady... She will not take no for an answer. She is so incredibly bold that she says back to Jesus. That's true. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And at that moment, Jesus says, your faith has won me over. Now, he's not upset. He's not like, okay, fine, I'll do it this one time, but don't ever talk to me like that again. He's overjoyed that she's willing to come boldly to see him. God likes Hannah doing this because what it says to God is you're my only hope. I'm not leaving here till you do something. Please help me. God is a bold God who does amazing things. And when his children come to him and say, I'm asking for something amazing, he's glorified by that. He's not annoyed by it. He likes it. He wants us to approach him that way. That's what Hannah's doing. Okay, number five. Not only is it emotionally engaging and time-consuming, absolutely absorbing and bold, this kind of prayer is physically exhausting. Look what it says in verse 15 near the end of the verse. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Second half of verse 16. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Hannah is saying, I am pouring out my life to God. She's completely spent at the end of this prayer. That she has taken every emotional and physical resource that she has and she has used them in this time of prayer. She has poured out her life in grief and anguish before the Lord. And it's not just Hannah who does this. 
We hear about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane according to Luke's version of what happened. In Luke 22, it says, An angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Just like Hannah was in anguish, Jesus is in anguish. And here he is, he is sweating. Now, don't read this that Jesus is bleeding. He's not bleeding. He's sweating so profusely, it's as if he's bleeding. It's like somebody stabbed him. The, 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 the flow of sweat is so great, it's like blood coming out of him. He is sweating so absolutely profusely because he's praying so earnestly. Now, this is amazing to me. When it's time for Jesus to take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000, he just gives thanks, breaks bread, and voila, food for everybody. He doesn't break a sweat. When it's time to cast out a demon, he just says the word and the demon leaves. He doesn't break a sweat. When it's time to heal somebody, he just lays his hands on them and heals them. He doesn't break a sweat. But here, he is sweating profusely. This is the hardest thing Jesus ever did except die. Walking on water, performing miracles, teaching, none of it taxes him like prayer does. And that's because when it's time to feed 5,000 people, Jesus is just wrestling with nature. When it's time to cast out a demon, Jesus is just wrestling with forces of evil. When it's time to heal someone, Jesus is just wrestling with sickness. But when it's time to pray, Jesus is wrestling with God. And when you gauge in a wrestling match with God, you're going to be tired at the end of it. Just like Jacob who grabs hold of God and wrestles him all night long and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. That is physically exhausting work that Hannah is grabbed hold of God and saying, I will not let you go until you help me, until you do something, until you show up. And at the end of this wrestling match, Hannah is exhausted. Jacob is exhausted. Jesus is exhausted. I used to think prayer was the thing you did to catch up on your sleep. It's actually the thing that's supposed to be the most tiring activity possible. Because in prayer, real prayer, we are wrestling with the God of the universe. And we ought not make the mistake to think that's an easy match. Final characteristic. Not only is it emotionally engaging and time-consuming, completely absorbing, it requires boldness and it's physically exhausting, the final characteristic of this kind of prayer is that it is powerfully effective. Verses 19 and 20. Early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. There was no hope for Hannah to have a baby except to engage with God in prayer in a real way. That there is something incredibly powerful about prayer, that it is the most powerful thing we can engage with. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they were coming down the Mount of Transfiguration and the rest of the disciples are down at the foot of the mountain and they had trouble casting out a demon out of a person and they ask, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Jesus says to him, 
this one only comes out by prayer. Like there are some things that you can do in this life that may not require prayer, but there are certain things in this life that you have reached the top of the ladder and the only thing that's going to make a difference is prayer. And Jesus says, hey, look, you've come up against something that there is no other tool in your toolkit that's gonna work, only prayer. That prayer is at the top of what we can do. When Elijah says we need it not to rain for three and a half years, he prays. That's the only way to make that happen. When Joshua needs the sun to stand still in the sky, he prays and God listens to him. It is powerfully effective. When we play around at prayer, we're playing around with the greatest power made available to us. When Hannah gets serious about prayer, Suddenly the power of God comes crashing into her life. In the most amazing, miraculous, immeasurably greater way than she could have ever imagined. There are two people in this story, Eli and Hannah, and they represent the two paths of prayer. Eli, even though he's a priest, ironically, he's playing around at prayer. He's never prayed the way Hannah prays. That's why he doesn't recognize it. He thinks she's drunk. It's because he's never experienced this kind of prayer. If he had prayed before in his life, he would know what she was doing. But Eli, the religious leader, who's doing all the right things on the outside, just like I was, was just playing around with prayer. Hannah represents the road less traveled, the people who are serious about prayer. At 19 years of age, I faced a crisis in my life, like Hannah faced in her life. And I'm here to tell you 21 years since, that one decision has made all the difference. All the difference. Please believe me. It has made all the difference. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect at prayer. It doesn't mean that I sometimes don't slip back into playing at prayer. It doesn't mean that there aren't setbacks. Yes, I understand all of that. I want to be better at prayer. I want to be more like Hannah prays here. You can't pray like this all of the time every morning. I understand that. But there is a difference in being on a path where you think that prayer does something. And that at the beginning, remember, it's two paths that diverge. That when you first switch paths, a person who is serious about prayer and a person who's playing at prayer may look somewhat alike because they're still diverging. But if you're on that path where you are serious about prayer, you will continue to make progress. And you'll begin to look more and more like Hannah and more and more like Jesus. And it was that decision that made all the difference. Now this morning, some of you are here and you are on the path of being serious about prayer. I want to encourage you from 1 Samuel 1, keep it up. You know what I'm talking about. I'm here preaching to the choir with you. Yes, we have setbacks. My only encouragement, just keep going. Keep moving forward. We want to be the kind of people who pray like our Lord and Savior prayed. You know the great thing about Jesus? is our prayer life's never gonna be better than his. He's always out there for us. And we can keep moving towards him and where Hannah is as well. Now some here this morning, maybe even a majority, are gonna take this sermon and file it away in the list of sermons on powerful prayer. And you know what, that's okay. I did that too. At some point, that pile will grow so big that it will reach a tipping point. Or at some point, there will be a crisis that comes into your life in which you say, there is nothing that can help me. 
Maybe you won't remember this sermon at that point. That's fine. But maybe this passage or Jesus' example or another sermon or a Bible study will convince you to get off the path of playing at prayer and become serious about that. I will rejoice and be so glad for you when that day comes. But I think there's at least one person here this morning. Because when God said, I want you to preach this sermon from this book on that Sunday, I had this sense it was because there is at least one person here who is this morning facing that crisis. Who God has brought you here today to tell you you have no hope except if you pray. And that you've been playing around at prayer and it's time to be serious about prayer. And it all starts with the decision that prayer is not a ritual. It is the thing that changes the unchangeable. And if you're here this morning and you're that person, just know I've been praying for you for a long time. And I'm asking that right now that that voice you hear in your ear and in your heart is not mine. It's God saying to you, this is me, I'm calling you to pray. I'm telling you to pray like this. May God give you the strength to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of prayer. Thank you that you are generous and gracious to us. That though we play around with the greatest power that you have made available to us, that you do in your mercy and grace come to us and encourage us to stop playing and to be serious. Lord, we take no credit for doing that. I look back on that decision 21 years ago and am more convinced today that that was you who orchestrated everything about that. I had nothing to do with it. And I thank you for that. Lord, there are those here this morning who are serious about prayer. Encourage them. There are those here for whom this sermon needs to be number 45 and the hundredth sermons they need to hear. Lord, please let those other sermons come quickly. But God, for some here today, maybe just one, let them hear your voice calling them to switch paths. And I pray that 21 years from now or five years from now or 50 years from now, they would look back and say the same thing. That the decision to take the road less traveled has made all the difference. Lord, do this for your glory. Amen.